united, we can and will overcome. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. This week, everything is just a little bit too much. So Chloe and I have decided to lighten things up a little bit and talk about fashion and fracking, looking at the divisions that do and don't exist on the left of American politics when it comes to climate change and the environment. We also look at the role of television media and the first television presidents. And finally, Chloe takes us through the history of the polling industry and why we should still be pretty sceptical about what polls are telling us. I, I think I did myself and anyone who's listening a bit of a favour last night when I told Emma at about 10.30 in the evening that she was not allowed to talk about fascism in today's episode of Barely Getting By. You did. Um, Chloe told me quite firmly that I wasn't allowed to, to use yet another article on white supremacy in the United States, which and apparently Baby Viv agrees, as you can hear in the background, which I, I think is completely fair enough. I think a lot of people are exhausted, especially being in Melbourne. It seems like this week everybody has just kind of had enough. So instead of talking about white supremacy, Chloe has picked something a little bit different to talk about. Well, something a little bit different to use as a springboard for a much more serious discussion about fracking that will shortly follow because, I mean, we can't get away from depressing things, can we? But when I was when I was looking into the environmental politics of the Democratic Party, I came across an article about the young New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's shoes in In Style magazine. I thought that was a good point to start with. Not least because it was about AOC wearing Birkenstocks, which I took as an endorsement for one of my favourite types of shoe, which is very comfortable coming into a hot Australian summer. Um, But more because of the framing around, the persistent framing of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the media, which is as a particularly divisive figure. In this case, not only was her decision to wear Birkenstocks somewhat contentious, but apparently even the style, which was, I think, white flip-flop style Burks was also potentially divisive in the fashion community. Yes, apparently this is something that I I have learned this week, thanks to to InStyle magazine, that Birkenstocks or the style of Birkenstocks that you choose is is potentially divisive, a very serious issue. But I think you're right, Chloe, it it really points to the way Ocasio-Cortez is presented, framed, whatever, by the media as this kind of lone figure embodying the divisions of the Democratic Party to the point where it even comes down to her fashion choices. So it's I think it's interesting that you mentioned that Ocasio-Cortez is often presented as this lone figure, you know, this lone voice of morality and or morality on the one hand, radicalism on the other within the Democratic Party. And I think we wanted to kind of get into that a little bit and talk about the wider forces that she's representing and some of the tensions even within the left of the Democratic Party and the broader left in America. That is not my plan. That's green, new deal is not my plan. 
A couple of weeks ago in our first episode, we talked about the New Deal and the Green New Deal and the way that Joe Biden is presenting himself as as kind of a pragmatist on climate. And that was absolutely clear in the way that he was talking about the Green New Deal at the first presidential debate with Donald Trump. So during the debate, anyone who watched it, it was it was horrible. I'm sure everyone's still feeling quite scarred from that. Um, During the debate, Trump tried to wedge Biden on what Trump was calling the radical Green New Deal. And it was kind of a classic wedge tactic that will be familiar to anyone in Australia, I think, where he was talking about about the issue of climate change and how we address the climate crisis as a problem of the economy versus the climate. Joe Biden Interestingly, he his reply was very firm. He said, and I'm quoting him here, the Green New Deal is not my plan, which is of a piece with the very pragmatic rhetoric that he's been using to frame his approach to the Green New Deal and also his historical pro- his approach to the history of New Deals in America. What followed from that is that a lot of the press in the US immediately started spoiling for a fight within the Democratic Party between moderates like, like Joe Biden and the left. But it didn't really work. Yeah, and I think this is, this is potentially a really interesting development in American politics, Chloe, because historically that has worked really effectively to to both present this kind of argument of economy versus the climate and economy always has to win you know um donald trump saying saying these ridiculous things about how the radical green new deal is going to take away your cows you're not allowed to have you're not going to be allowed to have hamburgers or suvs and that's kind of had traction but that simultaneous tactic of then trying to set the Democratic Party kind of against themselves, you know, the progressive elements who were, who were, I guess, fighting to have cows banned or whatever, and the and the more centrist elements represented by Joe Biden who are trying to kind of strike this, you know, ideal path between economy and climate. And usually it is really effective, but as you're kind of getting at, Chloe, it, it maybe isn't working as effectively as it has in the past. No, and I think the first reason for that is that we kind of have to look under underneath Joe Biden's rhetoric at the debate where he's saying that the Green New Deal isn't his plan because what's actually happening is that the, the plan he's proposed, it is nothing like the Green New Deal. It is not, it's not nearly as radical as the Green New Deal that was proposed by Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey. It doesn't, you know, I mean, most importantly, it doesn't really touch capitalism and the influence of capital in public life in America in the way that the original Green New Deal aspires to. But at the same time, it is, you know, a, an impressively radical suite of measures. And it was it's also something that was partly brought into being, one, by, you know, it's something that's very much inspired by the Sunrise Movement, which is a youth-led climate movement in the USA. And it's also something that um, Bernie Sanders had a direct hand in. He was, I think, he was the chair of Joe Biden's Climate Task Force, which was, which was set up to devise his climate policy a few months back. So... You know, it doesn't, one, this, this idea of pitting the economy against the environment and pitting Democrats against themselves doesn't really reflect what's actually going on, which is this intense pro- process of negotiation and also politics. It also doesn't really reflect what's happening on the left, I don't think, although this is very much, you know, a live debate and I think will continue to be one even if Joe Biden does win the, the election in November. So, you know, there's kind of this 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 presentation of the left as you know divided against itself and how and people were talking about how 
Joe Biden's um, performance at the debate would dissuade left-wing voters from turning out for him because he wasn't offering them him, them those active inducements to come out and vote for his climate policy, which he was saying wasn't a Green New Deal. I There's a very vibrant and quite fierce, you know, quite angry debate sometimes on the American left at the moment about how to treat Joe Biden, who I think most American leftists agree that Joe Biden is very far from an ideal presidential candidate. But, and, you know, the question then becomes, you know, do you, do you, do you vote for him? Do you support him passionately? Or are you, are you a vocal supporter for Joe Biden, despite his obvious short, shortcomings as a candidate? And I think there is kind of an emerging consensus, and this is certainly something that Ocasio-Cortez as an elected representative is behind. There's an emerging consensus that, to the most important thing at this election is to get Trump out because that is an absolute condition for there to be effective action, for instance, on climate in the next 10 years in the USA, in the crucial decade for get for restraining carbon emissions. And then once you've got Trump out, installed Biden, then you have to just continue those efforts to push Biden further to the left, push him in a more progressive a progressive direction, in this case on climate, but also on, on racial justice issues, also on issues around welfare and the reconstitution of an American welfare state, which, you know, then becomes another, that becomes a question of tactics into the future, which is about whether, you know, whether you work in collaboration with and in coalition with more progressive Democrats to get those legislative options up, or if you do take a more oppositional stance and you do, you know, openly campaign against democratic policy where that's where that's necessary. And my sense of it at the at the moment, at least, Chloe, as you say, this is this is a kind of constantly shifting debate, is that really there's kind of a mix of the two happening. So so the Sunrise movement in particular, you know, and AOC and the squad and even Bernie Sanders can are making I think what is a really effective argument to say look this is working you know we have pushed somebody like Joe Biden who is a, an old centrist politics as usual guy we have pushed him to a net zero emissions target by 2050 that is astounding that the the centrist democrats led by Biden and Nancy Pelosi and figures like that would commit to a program that is so radical and I think the left kind of progressive base of the Democratic Party can take a lot of credit for that. It's also because I think of the sheer unavoidable urgency of this kind of action. But part of the reason that has become so obvious is because of that groundwork by progressive environmental movements in the United States. Going back even before AOC is elected, you know, this is a long game that that movement has been playing, going back to things like the protest against the Dakota access pipeline, this quite radical protest movement that is having a discernible impact, I think, on, I guess, mainstream politics. Yeah. And I think that goes to another really important point that, you know, that that a lot of people are making. This isn't, you know, this isn't mine or your insight, is that politics doesn't start and end at elections. It is a constant process. And that's something that the left has embraced and needs to continue to embrace because, you know, so Joe Biden's pledges on climate coming into the election, that's not the end of climate politics. That's not something that gets written into law the the day he becomes president. It's, you know, there is a constant process of negotiation. There's a constant process of struggle and opposition and the left is playing a long game. But, you know, this isn't something that happens totally in the background. And I think that's why we wanted to talk about fracking because 
fracking is a really potent issue in environmental politics and it's one that came out came up quite explicitly at the vice presidential debate last week that's right and it's an issue i think that kind of exposes all of these questions that that we've been talking about around potential splits in the democratic party and how much the progressive left is is pushing the democratic party on these environmental issues because Fracking came up in what I initially thought was a really kind of weird way in the vice presidential debate last week. So this is when Kamala Harris and Mike Pence are having what was often quite an extensive policy debate about significant ideological differences rather than just kind of shouting and interrupting each other. And, you know, Mike Pence is doing the usual line about the radical Green New Deal that's going to cost trillions of dollars, they're going to destroy our economy, blah, 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 blah. And Kamala Harris I, th- I thought kind of rebutted these arguments fairly effectively, but then kept kind of weirdly saying Joe Biden, but Joe Biden will not ban fracking. And it really st- it stood out to me because she kind of kept saying it and drawing attention to it in a way that Democrats and, and you know, the left across the world, the Labour Party here kind of, uh, I thought at least opened her up to Mike Pence's arguments being more effective. Which is interesting because you feel, you know, that kind of persistent repetition of, you know, that Joe Biden doesn't doesn't want to ban fracking. You know, that could that can only you can only assume that that is a line that she's been set up with for the debate, but it's also one that if she keeps repeating it is bound to spe- spectacularly backfire and that's kind of what happened, isn't it? I think so. I think because, as you say, Chloe, it kind of opens up democratic environmental policy to that argument about economy versus climate, and it and it makes it kind of makes the Democrats look as though they're equivocating. But when it comes to fracking, there are very clear reasons for doing that. Well, that's I that's what I wanted to know because I feel like fracking is something we hear about a lot, including here in Australia. So, could you give us like a really quick down and dirty summary of what it is and why it's such a such a problem. Sure. So so fracking is a, a relatively new way of getting to oil and gas reserves that are otherwise quite difficult to get to. So basically, and this is my complete layman's explanation, it's a process of drilling down into shale rock and then kind of shooting a mixture of water and quite corrosive chemicals into that Um, drill shaft in in order to kind of release the gas and oil that's trapped in the shale rock. And there's been a massive fracking boom in the United States, particularly in in what's called the Permian Basin, which is a big area of Texas and New Mexico. And that fracking boom has significantly increased domestic oil production in the United States and and driven down fuel prices in the US. So so it's been, it's had quite an impact there and and was used particularly in arguments about getting the US off its reliance on Middle Eastern oil. So it feeds into arguments about energy independence. It's really important when it comes to the election because not of the Permian Basin, which is where a lot of this um, boom comes out of, but because of Pennsylvania. So there's a huge project in Pennsylvania called the Mariner East Pipelines, which is basically a big fracking project. And it's significant that it's happening in Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania is critical when it comes to the Electoral College. It's a swing state. So Trump only beat Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania in 2016 by just over 44,000 votes. 
So the reason that Kamala Harris kept insisting during the debate that Joe Biden will not ban fracking is because the Democrats see this as a crucial issue in Pennsylvania. They're worried that if, you know, the so-called kind of working class blue collar voters in Pennsylvania think they're going to ban fracking, which they actually can't do, but, you know, that's kind of immaterial to this debate. They're worried that if those voters think they're going to ban fracking, they will head back or stick with Donald Trump and the Republican Party. And they they need, because of the Electoral College, they need Pennsylvania to win. So that is why there was this kind of weird moment where fracking becomes so prominent in the debate and why Kamala Harris was so intent on getting that line out that Joe Biden will not ban fracking. It's because of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and from, from a centrist Democrat perspective and from the perspective of of I guess kind of just counting the counting the numbers in the electoral college, it makes sense that you would perhaps risk alienating the left further when you know the left doesn't, as we know, doesn't fully trust Biden Harris the Biden Harris ticket when it comes to environmental issues for the sake of trying to shore up those votes in Pennsylvania. Do we know how what, what the polling's looking like in Pennsylvania at the moment? Well, it's pretty it's pretty good, I think, for, for Biden and Harris, you know, with all the usual caveats. I think the last time I checked, they were about um, seven points ahead of Trump, which when you look at the national average is kind of on the low end. So that's why they're worried, because Biden's margin in a place like Pennsylvania isn't as big as it is nationally and it isn't as big as they would like it to be. So they're worried, I think, about Pennsylvania. And, and that's why, as you say, Chloe, they're willing to risk, you know, so alienating the left, alienating people worried about climate change, you know, it, kind of exposing themselves to this, these accusations of, um, I guess, hypocrisy on climate because of a, what is purely a political calculation. So if you're looking at climate change as a broader issue, somewhere like California becomes crucial because California and the West Coast are experiencing what is the biggest fire season they have ever had this is you know overshadowing every every previous fire season and Biden has spoken about California but the Biden Harris ticket haven't been campaigning in California they haven't gone to to view the destruction they haven't gone to to do the kind of I guess you know Biden as sufferer in chief um, performance in California performance is probably not fair you know I think this, it would be genuine. Biden's concerns about California are genuine, but he doesn't need to campaign there. California is a certainty for the Democrats. All of those electoral college votes are going to go to Biden and Harris, but that's not necessarily the case in Pennsylvania. And again, that's that's why we have this lingering contradiction both between those kind of progressive and centrist wings of the Democratic Party, but around climate and the Green New Deal and fracking and all of those environmental issues more generally. And Ocasio-Cortez had something to say about fracking on Twitter during the debate or just after when she tweeted, fracking is bad, actually. And it certainly, it certainly is. Do you want to explain why? It is. She just, she, she has such an amazing um, skill at, at political communication because, you know, with those four words, she has kind of wrapped up the debate about fracking because it is bad. It's totally, it's terrible. Um, it uses things like huge amount of huge amounts of water, which have to be transported on site. It causes earth tremors. Um, it can leak carcinogenic chemicals into the water table, into the groundwater. Um, it in Pennsylvania, um, 
you know, where this debate is happening over this um, Mariner East pipelines. There have been floods, there have been mudslides as a result of the development of these pipelines. And that's all aside from the fact that this is getting at fossil fuels. This is increasing emissions, albeit not as much as, as standard oil drilling. You know, it's still fossil fuels. It's still fossil gas and, and oil causing CO2 emissions. Like you said, Ocasio-Cortez is a, a brilliant political communicator and she's someone who is very good at distilling both complex and fairly straightforward, in the case of fracking, complex messages into you know very, very short, contained and pithy observations. And I wanted to come back to something else that she said that recently, which has been rattling around in my head for a couple of months now, because I think it also brings us back to that question of whether she really is a divisive figure or if perhaps she could be a unifying one. And that's a comment she made on her Instagram stories. Yes, I watch Casio Cortez's Instagram stories. They are very inspirational. They are a good tonic in these very dark times. I highly recommend them. Um, but she was talking about the Democratic Party convention and her role in that had been the object of some scrutiny because she took, you know, it was what she did was absolutely fine, but she was given the she was given basically the speaking slot where she just gave a two minute endorsement of Bernie Sanders, which was a pure formality. But on what on the one hand, you know, there were people who were very angry at her for speaking up for the for the second place getter in the Democratic nomination, like that was a divisive act. There were also people who were on her side who were saying she should have been given more prominence at the at the convention as one of the Democratic Party's rising stars. But anyway, so she was taught asked for her thoughts about this and she wrote she wrote about the Democratic Party, the things she agreed with, the things she didn't, but she also had this one comment which was not every disagreement is a fight. And I just, I keep thinking about that, both for what it reflects in the US context, but for also, also for what it, what I think it can say to Australian climate politics, where we seem to be unable to have a, a genuinely productive disagreement. And, you know, that's, I think disagreement is great. And obviously, I think it should be pretty clear that Emma and I both have some very clear disagreements with both major parties' climate policies. But there seems to be this absolute impasse within within progressive and left wing politics where we can't turn those disagreements into something that something productive and something that actually advances the causes that we care about. In this case, again, climate change. Yeah, totally. And I think it's also something that gets tied up in so many assumptions about what people care about. So. You know, so much of this fight is about communication and about, you know, going back to those kind of working class blue collar voters in Pennsylvania and people making assumptions about what they care about and what's going to change their vote. Because the assumption on the part of, you know, Biden Harris is that this is a vote changer, is that, you know, potentially even the idea of banning fracking will turn people against the Democrats. Whereas some research is actually suggesting that it's not as big an issue as Democrats are assuming that it is, even that there is actually significant opposition to these fracking projects in Pennsylvania, and that potentially what the Democrats are failing to do is to tap into that opposition. And, you know, as Chloe, as you said, you know, have and have those arguments that we are trying and failing to have in Australia around, you know, potential job losses and how you actually reconstruct an economy in a way that is just and inclusive rather than just talking about swapping out fracking or coal jobs or whatever for 
equivalent jobs or making the argument that you can never achieve the kind of economic security and stability that a cold job will give you and and kind of falling into that trap of of having that argument and i think that the other the other thing that comes to mind when when we talk about this problem of how we talk to people about climate change and the necessity for energy transitions it's quite different here because i think that in some ways and this is something i've said before on the podcast i think that in some ways are the setup of our politics and the setup of our institutions is particularly resist. It, it, it sets us up for resistance to that. So you know, I'm thinking about the fact that, as I've said, as I've said a million times, you know, it would not be possible to elect an equivalent of an Ocasio Cortez into the Australian Parliament. Yeah, this, this, so this is something that I think a lot of us kind of ask ourselves because you see all the time, you know, where is Australia's AOC? Like, who is the Australian equivalent to AOC? And, and you're right, Chloe, there, there really isn't one. And I at least can't see the prospect of there being one anytime soon. And there are, I, I think there are structural reasons for that. I think, yeah, I think it does come back to those structural reasons and that chiefly the fact that the selection of candidates for for parliament and for and for senates in australia is absolutely controlled by parties so there's nothing like the open primaries aoc wasn't elected in an open primary but there are open primaries in the us for instance where anyone can run and anyone can vote in some states in aoc's case you know it was even new york where it was a democratic party for democratic party members it was always theoretically possible for her as an outsider to challenge an incumbent that's not something that's available in australia where the pre the pre-selection process is so wholly governed by parties and particularly by party hierarchies it's also you know it's like when she did make that successful campaign that successful um challenge to the incumbent in her seat in in new york that was she was taking on not only those institutional factors, but she was taking on big money and big donations that were going to or to that, that were going to the incumbent. But she also had the the backing of some quite influential progressive groups, so groups like groups like the like the Justice Democrats. And you know we've seen that's that's a kind of a, an activist sphere that's flourishing in the U.S. The Sunrise Movement, which was quite instrumental in backing Senator Ed Markey when he was actually defending a challenge from Joe Kennedy III, you know, another Kennedy princeling who thought he was going to usurp a progressive senator in Massachusetts. Um, so there are these kind of these very strongly supported movements that are very well organised to support insurgent and outsider candidates. That's not to underrate the importance of the party machine in the USA, and I think that that's really the the major battleground within amongst progressives and within the Democratic Party in any prospective Biden presidency. The role of television when it comes to presidential elections has been very much back in focus recently, as has presidential illness and how it's covered. So we thought we might go back and have a look at the very first television president, which I think it is safe to say, Chloe, uh, was JFK. I think that's very safe to say. I think 
Uh, John F. Kennedy's presidency marked a new era of visibility for the White House. And the example I want to use to illustrate that is a contrast between JFK and another much acronymed uh, Democratic president, FDR, um, who we've spoken about previously on the podcast. One of the interesting things about FDR's presidency is, you know, and there are a lot of myths around this. So, you know, occasionally you'll hear that FDR, that he hid his disability from the public. That's not strictly true. It was kind of, you know, so FDR, he wasn't able to walk unaided um, and he used a wheelchair for most of the time after he had polio in the early 1920s. He didn't hide that from the public, but he pretty effectively neutralised it as a political issue. And in part, he was able to do that because he didn't have, you know, the relentless glare of TV cameras in his face and on his on, on his White House. By contrast with John F. Kennedy, who from the very beginnings of his political career proved a very astute and adept manipulator of, of, the, of tele- media and television in particular, The reason that's quite an illuminating contrast, I think, is because JFK was very unwell. He lived, for example, you know, he had multiple conditions and he lived with severe chronic back pain, including for the duration of his presidency. But this was very carefully hidden from the public. And that was because so much of JFK's early popularity and so much of the image of his presidency that's still with us today is tied to an image of youth, health and for want of a better way of saying it, all American male vigour. And he used TV, of course, to cultivate that image. But TV is a pretty new thing at this time, isn't it? Well, that's well. it's a new thing as a, I guess, a mass media phenomenon. So by 1960, 87% of American homes, so that's more than 46 million homes, had a TV. And that's 25% more than in 1956. So we can see... You know, throughout the 1950s, television was growing exponentially and JFK's stature as a politician was growing with it. Yeah, and he was super popular even before he came, became president, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. And it was all, you know, it was all very carefully planned. So the Kennedys had already been fashioning themselves into something as close to aristocracy as America has ever had and American democracy would allow. Um as kind of a side note, I had this this thought bubble just before. I was thinking, is is like is JFK's kind to be compared to Meghan Markle, which I'm gonna leave that there because but I, I think it's it's almost it's almost an interesting provocation. Um, but yeah, so basically JFK he was groomed for the presidency by his father, and this was after you know after his brother died in the Second World War, which is kind of awkward. Um, he was elected to Congress in 1947 and to the Senate in 1953. And as a senator, one of the key moments in his sort of, you know, what looks today like a relentless march towards the presidency was publication of his book Profiles in Courage, which was actually co-written um, and won a Pulitzer. So he's this kind of, um, I guess, rising star of American politics. He's he's suited so well to the new media landscape. He's gorgeous, of course, which which helps. And he's up against Richard Nixon, who, you know, is it safe to say is none of those things? Yeah, well, it's it's safe to say that because, you know, the key role of television in that election was to draw out a, you know, to draw out a contrast 
between them. And, you know, I think the first thing to say about Richard Nixon is that he didn't have the reputation back then that he does today. He was actually coming into that into that contest as the vice president. So he was coming from a position of immense authority and respect. He was he had serious standing with the public and he was well in, well ahead in the polls at the start of that campaign in 1960. Um, and, and that campaign was was very different wasn't it it marked it marked a departure for presidential campaigns because of tv that's right so this was the first campaign where they held television debates which i think across across the western western democracies we consider them pretty ubiquitous um but this is the first the first american election where they held four televised great debates in the autumn, in the like, sort of late September, October, in the lead up to the November election, and it's interesting because you know people people feared what would happen. They actually thought that it was you know in a sense corrupting democracy by making it into entertainment, which is something that I think we'll definitely come back to. And so what happened was you know the the pre, you know the media people weren't really taking it necessarily that se- that seriously. Um, I think perhaps Richard Nixon, I'm not going to blame him for this, given, you know, this is the first time it happened. Don't think he maybe took it that seriously. So before the first debate, he'd been in hospital for two weeks. He had lost 20 pounds. He was 20 pounds underweight when he came out of hospital. So he wasn't looking great. He apparently wore a badly fitting shirt and he refused to put on makeup. So compare that to the, you know, the very telegenic and erudite John F. Kennedy, um, he didn't. He didn't appear. He didn't appear to come across very well. And the reason I'm saying appear is because it was really interesting. In the aftermath of that debate, people who, when polling was conducted, people who'd listened to that debate on the radio thought that Nixon had won, whereas TV viewers, and there were 70 million of them, thought that JFK had won. And you know, I'm. I think you know, as we've made pretty clear across this episode, pretty reticent to say that a t. You know, that a, a TV debate is the decisive factor in an election. But this one, in this case, I think we can say that the the debates certainly shaped the election and its outcome. And they also had a really, you know, as we know now, they've had a really strong influence on how we conduct uh, democratic politics, not only in America, but also across the Western world. Yeah, which is something that Nixon, for, for his part, wasn't particularly pleased about. Well, yeah, and I think it's probably, you know, kind of perverse testimony to the importance of debates by the 1960s that he refused to debate in both 1968 and 1972. The question before us is, which point of view and which party do we want to lead the United States? Mr. Nixon, would you like to comment on that statement? I have no comment. Okay, so aside from Nixon, though, Chloe, what does having debates and and the broader campaign on television mean for American democracy? Well, I think that the, the interesting thing is to compare those early fears about what a, a television debate would do to democracy, where, you know, people were worried that it was going to corrupt and debase democracy, to how we look at them now, where, you know, we kind of think that television and, you know, and a huge extent of media coverage goes hand in hand in democracy, because it's all about encouraging transparency and shining a light on the operations of power, on the personalities, on the views of, in this case, presidential candidates. Um, I think it also, it's also something that's really important to reflect on now because, you know, the, the increasing emphasis on television and television debates in particular, it 
ties into that ongoing theme of the 20th century, which is, you know, it's a so close association between technology and progress, which is something that is, I think, coming under much closer scrutiny today when, you know, we look at things like Facebook and the way that Facebook manipulates, manipulates news and enables, you know, distortions of the truth. And we can see kind of a decoupling of that relationship between technology and, and democracy and, you know, the proper exercise of democratic power. Yeah, totally. And I think when you when you tie that in as well with the way that televised debates uh, have become kind of fixtures of, of, you know, all of our political calendars, but American ones in particular, they now become so staged managed that often you can kind of write about what impact it's going to have before it's even happened because they, they are so closely managed, you know, much like the, the conventions now where there's not really that room for unexpected things to happen, which is where that kind of, I guess, sense of accountability and transparency becomes lost because that's not what they're for. Yeah, and I think that that kind of credulity around debates, so, you know, people at once it's almost like you see when commentators are talking about debates they're kind of kind of holding two thoughts in their head at once so they're both recognizing that it's intensely stage managed but also treating debates like they are really authentic moments in a campaign and ones that are potentially quite decisive and i i personally think that a lot of voters are cleverer than that and they can see through the stage management i mean i always think about the you know people sort of assume, you know, assume that debates can be decisive. And I always think about the um, 2016 presidential campaign when there was that moment where Trump was seen stalking, I think people called it, Hillary Clinton on stage, which was, you know, a perfect example of a stage-managed debate moment, I think on both sides, because they both tried to capitalise on that. And people thought that was in some way decisive. You know, people, you know, the people would see Trump for what he really was and then they wouldn't, no one would vote for him. Like, that's not how it t- that's not how it turned out, is it? No, it's not. And I, you know, I have to admit as well that I at that time kind of wrote wrote about the debate a little bit in that way, you know, because it was so confronting to see him kind of looming over Hillary Clinton in that way. And it I guess it kind of that moment fed into a series of moments in that campaign where people were looking for that, you know, that one event where everybody would, again, you know, finally realise that Trump is unelectable and and this is going to tank his campaign completely. And, you know, there were there was moment after moment of that and, ha- and has been throughout his presidency as well that hasn't eventuated. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like the debates and, you know, people's conduct in the debates, it's meant to, you know, they're, they're managing it and presenting it as a metaphor for you know, what they will be in power. So, you know, Trump is stalking a woman on stage, therefore he will be a menace to women when he's in power. I don't I don't know that most voters are thinking on the level of metaphor. I, thinking, I think they're probably thinking about what that person is going to do for them in their day-to-day lives. Yeah, and I think recently, at least, Trump has been much better at using that to his advantage. The way that people consume media, he's much better at using that to his political advantage. Yeah, and it's something that he's only got better at, and I don't think that liberals have a very good answer to that. I mean, the perfect the perfect example of that would be how Trump has given space and airtime for the QAnon conspiracy to flourish, without without seeming to do much at all, apart from just continue to be his you know his old ridiculous self on Twitter. 
And I think as well, you, you know, using media really cleverly to signal to, to those parts of the, of the electorate, you know, understanding the, the way that those different platforms work is something that Trump, again, does does really, really well. But of course, Chloe, your reference to QAnon and, and conspiracy and, um, and Trump brings us back, I think, to, to JFK because his presidency is, is also, of course, surrounded by conspiracy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, if we talk about how JFK was very clever in the way that he used the media and, you know, he was able to use the, the media to advance his political ambitions and his presidency, you know, we also can't forget that his presidency ended on television and, you know, I mean, with, with his assassination and it's... You know, and obviously, I mean, this sounds this sounds kind of crass, uh, but you know, he had no control over that. But I think the the point I'm trying to make is that JFK's assassination was kind of, I think, the starting point for contemporary conspiracy theory. I think you can draw a line from JFK's assassination, from the way that people have treated with varying degrees of you know of skepticism, but also attempts to make sense of it through through the media you can draw a line from that right through to QAnon yeah and and JFK is is central to at least some of Trump's conspiracy making as well I don't know if you remember when he said during the primary contest when he was running for nomination he um, claimed that Ted Cruz who was also running for the nomination Ted Cruz's dad had helped Lee Harvey Oswald assassinate JFK in some way I'm not exactly clear on the details but yeah and you know so there's that kind of direct line and I think it's it's interesting to think about how between JFK and Trump the American president is such a central figure in conspiracy theory and you know it's kind of obvious that it would be you know we're talking about the most powerful man in the world who's a figure of enormous real and symbolic power and is you know a person with whom you know I think many of us, including those of us outside of the USA, we kind of think that the world begins and ends with the US presidency. I mean, that's why we're doing a podcast series about this upcoming election. It's something that keeps us awake at night. We can go from the grassy knoll to QAnon and this theory that Trump is the last man standing defending us against a global conspiratorial elite cabal of pedophiles. I think... One, you know, and I said before that I, I was considering comparing JFK to Meghan Markle. I think that, you know, there's probably a sense in which Trump is kind of a fun house mirror distortion of JFK, or at least that's what he thinks of himself as. You know, he's, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to cultivate, build his, he's, you know, a master manipulator of the media. He's someone who is actively trying to create a dynasty to replicate Camelot. And it's perhaps it's it's interesting that you know we have JFK on the one hand who is an icon of American liberalism and that's something that you know can certainly be contested and we have Trump on the other hand who seems to be trying to destroy it but they also exist on a continuum and I think that continuum is the media and the way they use the modern media. So with every election in living memory, of course, comes polling. And polling has been a focus in the US presidential election this time around, as usual, but particularly at the moment because 
Donald Trump's opponent, Joe Biden, is polling extremely well, especially at the national level. So 538, which is Nate Silver's um, website, organization, whatever you want to call it, has simulated the election 40,000 times to see who wins most often, and I'm quoting there, and they are forecasting a Biden win. Um, They have this little... It's called 5E Fox, this little cartoon character that can take you through all of the um, simulations that they have made. And I'm not sure if it's this kind of thing that everyone in Melbourne has lost it this week, but I just wanted to strangle that little fox. But maybe we'll we'll come back to that. Um, More generally, national polls are currently ranging from saying Biden is about eight points up on Trump to as much as 13 points ahead of a sitting president. Gallup, a a famous polling organisation that we'll come back to, um, focuses not so much on that specific polling of voting intention, but on what it describes as the mood of the nation. So things like presidential approval ratings, or that only, currently only 14% of polled voters feel that the country is going in the right direction. So taken together in like a normal, what we might call a normal presidential election cycle, I think we could pretty safely assume we're looking at something like the 1984 election when Ronald Reagan is campaigning for re-election against Walter Mondale. And he wins that election um, carrying every state except for Mondale's home state of Minnesota, which he only won by less than 4,000 votes. So that's kind of what polling is is telling us. But of course for reasons that we'll get into, no one is really willing to predict that kind of outcome. And I wanted today in our explainer to get into the reasons for that um, by looking at the history of polling and polling's relationships to American elections in particular. And luckily for us, this is um, yet another one of Chloe's areas of expertise. So Chloe is going to take us through the history of polling and what it might mean for this election. Well, when you say it's my area of expertise, I know a lot about failed experiments in leading mass opinion, especially in the 1930s, which is the starting point for any conversation about the modern American art or science. That's a debate that's very open of polling. So you mentioned Gallup polls just then, Emma, and you also mentioned the sort of the complexity and the array of different polls and different methods that pollsters Use, But it all basically comes back to one man, George Gallup, who founded the American Institute of Public Opinion in the mid-1930s. And it was, it was part democratic innovation, but it was also part of an emergent consumerist society. And it was designed as, as much as a marketing tool and a measurement of consumer sentiment as it was one of democratic sentiment. So polling was kind of taking off throughout the 1930s, but what its importance was and you know what what it could what its role in democracy took a while to become clear and i've kind of picked out two instances that i think can tell us a lot about the trajectory of early polling and its relationship to what we understand about polling today in the 1930s it was only a convention that an american president did not run for more than two terms it was in the 1950s that there was a constitutional amendment made that prevented a president from running for more than two terms. So the option was theoretically open to FDR. It just wasn't a popular one. So 1939, 63% of people disapproved of this idea he was mooting of running for a third term. In 1940, when he did run for that third term, he easily won election. 
The reason I'm, I'm pointing to that example is because I think that shows the way that intervening events can drastically change the circumstances around opinion and can drastically change opinion. So, you know, what happened in 1940? The Second World War. And that is what really boosted, if Emma's, Emma's giving me a side eye there, that's what really boosted FDR's re-election ch chances. And, you know, it's not a totally dissimilar situation to what we're seeing in the past few years in American politics. So, I'm sorry, I apologise for the side-eye, Chloe. Um, so polling, polling is a kind of an American invention. Yes, it's an American in invention and it's also an American export. So the Gallup polls, they pretty quickly made their way to the UK. And the other watershed moment I wanted to pick out in the history of polling is in 1945 in Britain, where Gallup polls were famously one of the very few sources that picked that the Labour Party was going to have a landslide win in that decisive 1945 general election. Most people were expecting the Conservatives, led by the wartime Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, to win that election. So that was a really big moment for the credibility of polling. It became, you know, it was held in much wider regard after it was seen to successfully predict those really important electoral moments. Okay, so that's kind of the beginning, I guess, of the importance of polling. How do you think it's changed since then? I think it's it's sharpened its focus. So, you know, you mentioned just all those different polls and all their different methods. And on the whole, their methods and their accuracy in terms of measuring public sentiment and forecasting political results, on the whole, it has only improved. But I think the more the more important transformation or the more, more important transformation from, I guess, a political or sociological perspective is uh, the transforming role for polls in modern democracy. So we started from this situation in the 1930s where polls were seen as, you know, a useful temperature check on public opinion. And what's happened in the decade since then is that polls no longer, they, they don't only reflect opinion. There's kind of this faux innocence around polls and the reporting of polling in the press, which I think is totally misplaced because they aren't, they aren't just innocent reflections of what people are thinking. They are, they, you know, I'd say that they're political actors in their own right. You know, they're things that actually guide behaviour and they are used by political parties and political actors to test and also to reframe policy. So, you know, and that's what one of the consequences of that is that people also behave in ways around the polls that aren't necessarily reflected in electoral results. And this is something that pollsters have constantly had to deal with when they're trying to you know, refine their science, as they often will call it. I wouldn't. Um, so, for instance, you know, in those, the, in those votes, the crucial votes in 2016, there was, on the one hand, in the US election, there was the phenomenon of, this, of the secret Trump voter. So the person who would tell all their friends and family and also polling companies they had no intention of voting for Trump, but then came out for him in the 2016 election. The same thing happened in Brexit. So there were people who would never admit to would never admit that they intended to vote for Britain to leave the EU, but they then did. It's you know it's also a known phenomenon of the shy Tory in the in the UK. The person who will never say I'm going to vote for Boris Johnson, the Tory party, but then they do. And that's there's kind of there's then this split between what a poll might be saying and then what actually happens in election results. And that sort of came to a head in 2016. And that was that was quite a shock, wasn't it, for the polling industry? It was because, as I said, you know, in those decades since the 1930s, 
polling, uh, you know, you're, you're right to describe it as an industry. It became, you know, it became big money and it had been refining its methods. And 2016 was also coming off a real high point for the science of polling in 20, 2008 and 2012, when Nate Silver, who you mentioned just before, when he accurately forecasted results in, I think, 49 out of 40, I think 49 states in both those elections. And I don't think it's a coincidence that this also happened during the Obama era. So it was happening at the very high tide of that, you know, progressive, resurgent, technocratic liberalism. And it's also not a coincidence that it got undermined by this wave of reaction that came with the 2016 result. Totally. And from what I can see, the polling industry has really been struggling with that, you know, because I think Nate Silver in particular has been at pains to say, we didn't get 2016 wrong. We were right. You just misunderstood the polling. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And while it is true that 538, as Nate Silver Silver is still constantly telling people, 538 gave Trump better odds than almost anyone else, they still forecasted a Clinton election. And that's why, you know, you you, you mentioned before this foxy thing, which sounds horrific, Um, but how they run, they run through these scenarios and, you know, and in all those, in most of those scenarios, Joe Biden wins. That's been, that's, you know, opening up, the way they do those forecasts, those forecasts by running through these alternative scenarios and then and then deducing probabilities from that. That's part of what Nate Silver's been doing since the 2016 election, which is trying to open up the science of polling, so to make its processes and its assumptions transparent, to I guess kind of reaffirm that that it is it is useful, that it is accurate. But I think that that also you know. It, it comes with its own risks. Yeah, for sure. And I, I mean, I, I kind of think one of the, the big risks there is that uh, what is supposed to be a kind of scientific endeavour is essentially trying to cram predictions about human behaviour into spreadsheets. And there's an assumption of, assumption of expertise and knowledge about human behaviour and political strategy that goes unexamined in the kind of construction of the complex math- mathematical models behind those spreadsheets. I'm sure it's not actually spreadsheets. It's not the Tory government and the NHS. But No, and that's, and that's right. You know, one, another of the responses to those 2016 results was for pollsters to try to put more, put more, factor in more of the contextual information that's going on around people's decisions as weighting, which is the, you know, the technical term weighting in the polling that they produce. But I think that is, you know, to be really, really, really simplistic about it, that's one of the big reasons why they were, a lot of polls were surprised by the result in 2016, because they do, they base a lot of their assumptions and the predictions they make on past behaviour by voters. So it's not like a poll will say, will take, you know, a random sample, you know, 48% of people in a certain sample say, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that the forecast will be 48% of people are going to vote for Trump or Trump will Trump will win with 48% of the vote. It then has to factor in all this demographic information, information about past behaviour, past preferences, you know, these sorts of things that the Gallup polls are talking about, which is that sentiment around, you know, dissatisfaction or satisfaction with American democracy. And I think the one of the big issues here which is way bigger than just you know looking at some nerds predictions for the election 
is that Nate Silver and people like him, they do, they pretend that they are objective and disinterested observers of politics, where, like I said before, they aren't, they're participants. They're participants, they're participants with views, they have, they have interpretations that, you know, that skew the democratic process. So, you know, for instance, this whole science, you know, this claim of there being a science of polling, what it's effectively doing is reducing democracy, I would say, to a technocratic exercise in, in, in preferences rather than what, you know, what it is, which is well, what I consider it to be, which is a struggle between material interests and moral interests. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that there's no clear-cut relationship between an increasingly scientific polling and progressive improvements in dem democracy and democratic behaviour. So, you know, the high tide of polling, which I talked about in 2008 and 2012, was also a time of increasing disenchantment with democracy that was going totally undetected by pollsters. And that's another thing that really surprised them. And am I right in thinking that, that part of the response from the polling industry has to to try at least and be a little bit more transparent about how this all works yes absolutely but I don't I think that it's something that potentially is backfiring on them because at the same time as they're trying to trying to expose the transparency of polling and you know and the the methods that go in behind it which are you know perfectly respectable sociological sociological quantitative and qualitative methods they're also dealing with a public that isn't necessarily that scientifically illiterate so I think we can end up with a parallel situation to what is happening say with armchair epidemiologists um, who are currently combating QAnon, QAnon conspiracists where science isn't understood as a scientific practice isn't understood so instead it gets kind of mystified and that's where we end up you know in situations where lay people like you know you and me I mean not being experts in the actual the actual um the actual practice of polling where we'll we will be in positions where we'll say oh but the polls say this therefore this outcome it's you know it's mystification you know in, in a sense it doesn't it kind of puts polling on the same plane as um contemporary astrology which I like much more than you know than than overconfident technocrats and their their liberal liberal daydreams. <laughs> that was a very academic of you. Okay, so given that, given polling is not like astrology, but maybe is a little bit like astrology. What what are polls doing now? Do you think in this election cycle? Well, I think you covered it really well just then, didn't you? When you said that Joe Biden is leading in all the polls, especially the national polls. But I think. We spoke a little bit earlier in the pod about Pennsylvania and the fact that Joe Biden has what looks like a fairly decent, solid lead in Pennsylvania, which is a crucial state in the election. But evidently his campaign is concerned that that isn't enough or that those numbers are soft or that those numbers aren't going to correspond to what actually happens on election day or what happens in the aftermath of the election. I think the most important thing we need to remember is that polling isn't accounting for what's actually happening in the democratic process, especially in an election like this one. I think we can trust what the polls are saying in, in terms of, you know, this increasing animus against Donald Trump and increasing support and fairly solid support for Joe Biden. But how this translates to actual votes and also how this translates in a scenario which isn't improbable where Donald Trump tries to frustrate a fair election outcome is quite uncertain. So I think 
my last word on it would be that the last thing we should be doing is being complacent or confident in a Biden victory just because the polls say it is the most likely outcome. People are more concerned about helping oil companies than helping their own families? I don't think so. I don't think so. This is about our lives. This is about American lives. Thanks for listening to Barely Getting By. Don't forget you can subscribe to our newsletter. This week we are going in-depth to look more at that issue of fracking. And we hope you'll tune in again to the podcast next week when we'll be joined by a very special guest.